There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Hello again, my friend, and welcome in to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. No matter how belated that may be, I'm sorry, my friend, I know, sneaking in under the wire of uh, the end of 2022 to give you one final episode. I gotta tell you, man, my life has been nuts for the last couple of months, especially the month of December, though. Um, Otherwise, I wouldn't keep you waiting. I wouldn't do that to you. You mean too much to me. We've been doing this for too long um but yeah uh, my wife and i took a anniversary we had our 10th anniversary this uh, month so we took a trip up the Rhine river in europe and went to some christmas markets and um you know had a nice little hallmark christmas in europe if you will and then all i got from the trip was covid no that's not true i had a great time on the trip it was fantastic but did get covid avoided it the whole time Avoided it all throughout the Midwest. And then I go to Europe and I come back and end up with COVID. So not the way that I thought that was going to go. And, I, you know, I'm boosted like three times. So it's it, it's it's a bummer. It, and it was it was a rough month. And it was like all we just spread it through the house. You know how it goes by this point. It's a, an old chestnut. Then we just did the, the holiday road trips all across the state of Ohio, as we have to do. I also did my annual viewings of The Muppet Christmas Carol, the greatest Christmas movie of all time, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and Charlie Brown Christmas, you know, the uh, the Christmas specials that never get old. Also watched The Grinch again for the first time in a long time, the uh, original. Um, I watched all three of The Grinches this holiday season, actually. Can you believe that? The original 60s TV special, um, which is, you know, is the greatest, the 2000 Ron Howard, Jim Carrey, just makes you want to claw out your eyes kind of thing, uh, where you just wonder what they were thinking at every single turn. And then the more recent, like a couple years ago, um, Benedict Cumberbatch animated one that I actually enjoyed a, a lot because I thought that, you know, the that animation is the way to do this story. Any Sue story, it's got to be animated because you just can't. I don't care how good your makeup, but makeup budget is. I don't care how good your set designers are, your costumers. It's just not going to feel as vibrant and technicolor and weird and wild as it can be with a cartoon. So that's the only way to do these stories. But yeah, I watched them all and the original's still the best. But yeah, Rudolph, 
Charlie Brown and Muppet Christmas Carol to me, the holy trinity of Christmas um, programming, I guess you could say. Uh, but the, the Grinch is a really good one. Uh, I want to urge you, as always, and I'm Clint Davis, by the way. I talk about movies and TV on this show. You can follow me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Clint Davis. You can find me on Letterboxd also at Mr. Clint Davis. If you want to see what I'm watching, I review everything I watch there. Um, and you can also, uh, when you're at Letterboxd and following me, you can see every single movie I recommend, even just in passing, on every episode of The Stream Police, at least for the last few. Because I didn't start doing this that long ago. So give me a break. This is episode 106. I don't have 106 lists on there. It would take some time to do that. Uh, but, you know, maybe I can at some point. But anyway, you can go and check out in my lists all the movies recommended in this episode of the show and the last few episodes as well and what I think about them. You can also find me on YouTube at Overdue Review Andy, Andy Sedlak, who we'll be talking to in just a little bit. He talks music on the show, and he's got a doozy of a segment this month. He is on Instagram at Andy Sedlak, S-E-D-L-A-K, in case you're wondering. Um, and like I said, his segment He's going to be doing a deep dive into the most recent crop of inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is in his hometown there of Cleveland. I do my segment uh, it just outside of Columbus, by the way. I sit in my closet in Columbus. Andy sits at his house in Cleveland. Um, and But he's going to be talking about why these inductees matter. And it's one of the most ambitious segments he's ever done. And we've been doing this show since 2015. So stick around. We're coming up on our eighth year of doing the Stream Police podcast, if you can believe it. And I want to say, I think we've built up a rapport here, and you will believe me on this, but long before she was Wednesday Adams, I, your humble narrator, was a Jenna Ortega fan. I already was on that boat when I saw her in Scream, the most recent, uh, you know, Scream reboots. I guess it was just a sequel. The latest Scream sequel. I thought she was the best part of the movie. And also the fantastic... Ty West horror movie X from uh, that was last year, I think, or two years ago. Loved that movie. One of my favorite recent horror movies. Another good A24 one. Uh, I was a huge fan of it. And Jenna Ortega is a big scene stealer in it. Um, you know, playing what starts out as kind of a wet blanket kind of character and then ending up being one of the most memorable parts of the entire movie. So Jenna Ortega, she was already great. She's a scream queen. What, what else do you want from her? All right, uh, before we get really into the meat of the show here today, I'm going to light my stogie up because I always like to do that in my closet. It's the, the cold months. This really adds to the ambience in here. So, you know, it's that time after Christmas, like the whole month of January and February. I swear to God, if it wasn't for the Super Bowl and playoff football in general, what would there really be for us to live for? Thankfully, this is also the time of year where the studios roll out all their, you know, most acclaimed movies so we can check those out um, again safely going to a movie theater. But um, it's just a rough time of year between the weather and everything. So got to do what I can and light a stogie up here. Let me get that going. All right, that's good. Let's start this show as we've been starting the last almost 80 shows here in the Stream Police podcast by getting into the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. This is our 79th entry 
into the canon. We're going to go back to the 1950s for this one. It's not a decade we've hit so many times, not as many times as we've hit the 80s, which was really the golden age of the TV theme song. Um, And more recently, we've been doing some shows from the last couple decades. But let's go all the way back to the late 1950s when the Western genre was one of the biggest on television and they going back to the early days of TV westerns were always somewhere on the guide and even to this day it continues to be a genre that pulls in big audiences and I don't think it'll ever fully disappear it's just too big a part of the american identity and the american entertainment business westerns are just it they they don't cost a lot to make but there's some great stories great characters that come out of them um and it's just part of our fabric right that's why we keep having these whether it be you know going back to the old days of gun smoke or in the 80s with walker texas ranger or more recently with deadwood yellowstone of course now and even justified westerns just keep on going and i think they always will be um and there have been a lot of good tv theme songs to come from westerns as well including bonanza uh, and Bat Masterson. I have both of those on my short list of of uh, greatest TV show theme songs of all time. But if you ask me, there's only one that can be crowned the all-time king of Western TV show theme songs. And it debuted on CBS in 1959. That's right, Rawhide. It aired on CBS for more than 200 episodes from 1959 to 1965 over a span of eight seasons. And it followed a group of cowboys in the mid-1800s who would lead cattle drives and get caught up in various plots on the prairie or in towns across the West. That's the gist of the show, hour-long episode. You know, you're in, you're out, you're having a good time, hanging out with the, the ranchers, and then, you know, you're on your way. It's a show that launched the career of Clint Eastwood. That's probably the most notable thing about Rawhide, because it wasn't the longest running of the Western shows, um, you know, and it wasn't necessarily the most acclaimed there's ever been, but it did launch the career of one of the most notable actor-directors to, uh, you know, ever grace Hollywood, Clint Eastwood, whom I happen to be named after, in case you didn't know that. And he co-starred in this show as a young, hotshot member of the cattle-driving crew, whose name was actually Rowdy. Uh, that was his first name, and I guess it uh, it summed him up fine. And the show's finer points have kind of been forgotten by pop culture at this point. But the Rawhide theme song has never been forgotten. My heart's calculating. My true love will be waiting, be waiting at the end of my ride. And why would it be forgotten? This tune is all muscle and grit. Exactly the things you think of when you think of a bunch of guys out driving cattle uh, in the Old West. I mean, this is not, there's no fat here to be trimmed. It was composed by Dmitry Tomkin, the legendary Russian film score artist who won four Oscars and was nominated for 22 of them. You know, I mean, he was like the John Williams of his day. Most of 
Tompkins' best work came in the Western film genre. So he was an expert at doing this kind of a song. He wrote the score for High Noon in 1952, won two Oscars for that, the one for the original score, one for the original song, uh, for the theme song of High Noon. So he was already an icon long before he wrote the theme for Rawhide. Um, The lyrics of the theme song were written by Ned Washington himself, a two-time Oscar winner and an 11-time nominee for original movie songs that included uh, the theme for High Noon, so he had worked with uh, Tomkin there before. But also, Ned Washington wrote the lyrics for Disney's When You Wish Upon a Star from Pinocchio. So there you go. There's something uh, cool. The guy who wrote the lyrics for When You Wish Upon a Star also wrote the lyrics for the Rawhide theme. So it was basically a dream team behind the pens on this one. Move them on, hit them up, hit them up, move them on, move them on, hit them up, raw high. Cut them out, ride them in, let them in, let them out, cut them out, ride them in, raw But we're not done there. To, to finish the triumvirate of masters behind the Rawhide theme song, we got to look at who sang it, and it is none other than Frankie Lane, one of the premier crooners of his era and a noted social activist from the civil rights years as well. He was actually the first white guest to ever appear on Nat King Cole's TV show. And Frankie Lane also gave a free concert on behalf of Martin Luther King Jr. during the Selma marches uh, to the, you know, the people who were marching. He did a free concert for him and he was a big shot back then. So, I mean, it was no small thing, especially him being a white guy. Uh, And Lane, of course, later sang the theme song for Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles, doing so in the most earnest way possible, because, of course, he did not know that the film was a comedy. Brooks did not tell him that. He wanted him to sing it as if uh, his life depended on it. And that's exactly what Lane did, the true professional, and further cemented his status as a legend, um, you know, behind the microphone. But he, he really belted it out here on the theme song for Rawhide. The Rawhide theme has lived on long beyond the show's run, which, as I said, ended in uh, the mid-1960s. Most notably, in the movie The Blues Brothers, when they covered this song, when they're at the, uh, you know, the, the bar where they only play two kinds of music, country and western, uh, and they can't figure out what songs to play because nothing in their repertoire would fit the, the mood of the bar at all. And the people are very, you know, just like out for blood trying to kill the Blues Brothers, so... They get the brilliant idea to cover the Rawhide theme, and it turns the crowd. Uh, and it's one of the best scenes in in a movie that is full of brilliant scenes. Uh, and also, it was featured in a series of Walmart ads that I remember greatly from the 1990s that featured a bouncing smiley face going down the aisles of Walmart and rolling prices back. So I don't know if you remember that, but instead of Rawhide, they changed it to Rollback, I believe, and... That was like, I didn't know anything about the Rawhide theme. I just knew it as the Rollback song. I kind of knew that before I knew this. So that's dating myself a little bit. But anyway, the Rawhide theme, written by Dimitri Tomkin and Ned Washington, performed by Frankie Lane. Uh, that is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. Hit him up! Move him out! Keep rolling, rolling, rolling. Though the streams are swollen, keep them doggies rolling, rawhide. Through rain and wind and weather, came 
transitioning from the greatest TV show theme song into talking about a TV show that has no theme song whatsoever. And I'm going to do that again this month by talking about HBO Max's How To with John Wilson, which has been one of my great discoveries over the past year. Uh, And this isn't a show. I'm not saying like I discovered it, you know, and nobody knew about it. Like this is some little gem, although I would say it's, it's probably gem territory, especially when you're looking through HBO Max and you're getting, you know, just overwhelmed by the sheer amount of content. Uh, even though the content is being pared down now and being sold off to other places, but that's a topic for a, another day and probably another show. But anyway, How To with John Wilson is one of these shows that I I remember reading about, but I had never like it. it I had never found the reason to get into it, and I I ended up getting into it because. Um, the algorithm worked. The one that tells you more like this at the bottom of the app when you're done watching. And it, for me, it was when I was done watching the rehearsal, the Nathan Fielder show, which I reviewed here uh, an episode or two back uh, on the stream police and, and raved about that show. Uh, and also, you know, um, Nathan for you, the other Nathan Fielder show that is now, you know, in its entirety on HBO Max as well. It shows up like on the recommended with those. And that's because Nathan Fielder, the host and the creator of those shows, is the executive producer of this show, How To with John Wilson. This show is very different, though, than um, what Nathan Fielder does. And in fact, this show is very different than anything I think I could really compare it to that I've ever seen on television. It's probably more comparable to diary writing, blog entries, essays, op-eds. But even that just does it such a disservice and makes it sound so boring. So what this show is, each each episode of How To with John Wilson is a half hour long. And the title of the episode will tell you that it's going to be a how-to on some topic that, you know, you may, your mileage may vary on, like how to find a parking spot. And really it means how to find a parking spot in New York. This show is very New York. This is like as New York as it gets, because John Wilson lives in New York. He does all of his filming in New York. He's always talking about New York things. And that's the show. It's a reality documentary show. And it is all shot in first person. So John Wilson is a documentarian who goes around and, no kidding, films like every single thing that he does in life. He's been doing it for years. He's got VHS tapes all through his apartment, as I'll show you, of just daily things that he does. And it's totally weird, right? Totally a weird thing to do. And we're not talking about like a small camera. We're talking about like a a good size camera because you catch glimpses of it sometimes in the show in a reflection or whatever. You very rarely ever see John, but he narrates every single episode. But the magic of How To With John Wilson is the way that he takes you from that topic, how to find a parking spot, and ends up turning it into some odyssey that makes you rethink materialism and 
how much you may need the things in your life and, and how to value the things in your life without being greedy with them uh, and without ruining the enjoyment of other people as well. It, every single episode of this show takes you on some odyssey, and that's why there's, there are few episodes of it. Each season's only six episodes. There have only been two seasons of this show so far, but it is just... A relaxing show to sit down with. It's a great one to spend a half hour with and then move on because you just want to see where John's going to take you. How is he going to make this interesting? And he is a master. He and his team, I should say, are masters of editing. It's one of the best edited TV shows that you will ever see because it just uses all of this essentially found footage that John Wilson has shot and somehow each shot will tie in either literally or metaphorically with whatever he happens to be talking about at that moment. The way I, that I'm describing this, it, it probably sounds pretentious and horrible, but it is not at all. Like the tone of this show is so unpretentious. John Wilson is such a an everyman, really, and and such a meek guy. Uh, that it's it just doesn't even get to that like he's never trying to you know i mean you get into all the he gets into all the problems in his own life in the show um but it's just not a a show that makes you it doesn't talk down to you at all it doesn't make you feel stupid um it doesn't make you feel bad about your own life it really just kind of opens your eyes to things and um you know really kind of shows you how other people live and also how far you can get in life just by asking questions and showing interest and listening to people because it's amazing how many just bizarre people he will meet throughout the course of this show and how into their lives they will let him even though he's got a camera right in their face and he tells them he's with HBO he's just like he something about him makes them lower their guard and let them in and it's so inexplicable, but when you watch the show, you'll just be glad that you sat down with it, and you'll be glad that a show like this exists because it is. It's so original, so different, um, and it's really the way that reality TV, like if somebody says reality TV is just blanket evil and it just is the death of television, then a show like this is what you show them and say, no, it's not. because, um, And just like the Nathan Fielder shows, it just offers a lot of insight into people um, and what makes them tick and also just the power of curiosity really and the power of new ideas. That was what Nathan Fielder's whole thing was. And with John Wilson, the whole thing is just seeing um, the way we live our lives and, and, and reporting on it. I mean, he's a journalist in the truest senses of the word. It is, it's just pure journalism. He's doing interviews uh, you know, on camera all the time. We're seeing them most of the time unedited. Um, he's just showing us exactly what's in front of his face at face value. The, you know, there's not any kind of like secret tricky, you know, editing like in camera tricks going on or anything like that. Like it's just the real shit that you're seeing. And also he's just, he's getting access to places without even really trying that hard just because he's asking and and telling them who he is and showing them his camera and it's just a bizarre really cool very funny um but just weird weird show sometimes but i really really like it how to with john wilson has been one of my favorite things to watch over the past year 
Um, and it's, it's just been, like I said, a real discovery for me and one that I cannot wait to see more of, but I also cannot fathom how long it takes to produce each episode of this show, because it just seems like every little thing is thought of and covered. And there are so many shots in each episode and God, New York is such a weird place. I mean, he just, the things that he shows you and just happens to see one guy with a camera out while he's shooting will absolutely blow you away. Uh, that he got some of these things on film uh, in the course of every single episode of the show. And it's also just wholesome and quaint. And New York shows aren't often like that. Uh, but How To With John Wilson absolutely is. It's He almost it sometimes makes New York seem like a small town where you can just strike up a conversation with anybody and find out their life story. And also where you can be best friends with your landlord and they will cook you dinner and you can watch Jeopardy with them. It's, a, it's very wholesome sweet stuff at the end of the day but very thought-provoking tv and really a feather in the cap of hbo and of nathan fielder i think uh, shows that you know he's not just somebody who's good at making these shows himself and hosting them like he's clearly finding things that are also uh, you know one of a kind and bringing them to us he's just becoming one of the most unique television artists out there whether he's hosting a show uh, or just executive producing it, and that's the case with How To with John Wilson. But I think a lot of the credit for this show needs to go squarely on the man whose name is in the title because he just puts it out there, and he tells some great stories and weaves them together. You know, Tales of the Naked City, man, they're all right here. Uh, it's put into half-hour increments, and, you know, you just might learn something as you as you go on. And when you watch the episode about how to, uh, you know, plastic wrap a couch or whatever the episode was called, how to wrap your furniture or something. You're not really going to let, like you will learn how they wrap furniture, but that's not really what you're going to take away from this episode. So if you go into how to with John Wilson, really expecting to learn how to do these things, you might come away disappointed, but if you go in with an open mind, I think you'll be anything, but you can stream both seasons of how to with John Wilson right now on HBO max. And I fully Fully recommend that you do that, my friend. Hey, New York. HBO is having a hard time uh, explaining what my show is, uh, so I, I just figured that I'd just try to do it myself. Usually the host of a TV show is uh, right in front of the camera, and you can see exactly where the uh, voice is coming from, which I guess people like. But in my show, you never really see the host, and that's because I'm actually behind the camera the whole time. Uh, filming everything you see. So, instead of having to uh, stare at me for the whole program, you get to see all the cool stuff that I, I like to film instead. Which I think makes it a lot more exciting to watch. I spent a lot of time uh, walking around New York, trying to find the answers to some of life's biggest questions. Sometimes I uh, talk to people that I, I meet out in public and ask them for their advice. Other times I'll just open up a door and see what's on the other side. <clears throat> and every now and then I leave town for a couple of days and explore what uh, other cities have to offer. But at the end of the day, I always uh, come right back. It's kind of like that show Planet Earth, uh, but if it was only in New York and uh, David Attenborough was forced to film everything himself. So stick with me. And I'll show you how to solve problems uh, that you didn't even know you had. Because even if it looks like you've 
got it all figured out, there's always a million ways to get it wrong. Just a real, real one-of-a-kind show. I mean, how many times do we get that? Just a one-of-a-kind, very unique kind of thing. And as it looks like the the clamps are kind of coming down on this era of anything goes streaming media where they'll just throw a budget even if it's not huge, a budget at anybody who's got an idea because so much content was needed. It seems like those days are ending uh rapidly and we may be coming, you know, to an era where everything that's even from the streaming networks is just designed to get the lowest common denominator and the most possible viewers. Uh, which is, you know, sad, and, and hopefully it doesn't come to that. But a show like How To with John Wilson would undoubtedly be canceled, I'm sure, which would be a shame. So it's just a, let, let's hope that it does it, it escapes under the radar of the powers that be at HBO Max. Speaking of HBO Max, I watched a movie um, on there that's streaming right now that Andy actually recommended I watch. And when Andy tells me that I need to watch a horror movie, I take notice because that's not exactly a genre that I usually connect with him. So the movie is Barbarian, and uh, I'm sure you've probably heard of this one by now. It came out uh, in fall, um, you know, around Halloween time of of, uh, just this year. And the movie is, you know, made a lot of waves because it just takes you in all these unexpected places. And that was really what Andy recommended to me. He said that, you know, he just had no idea where it was going to go. And to me, that is always something I value in any movie or television show having no idea where it's going to go. And I'm always a firm believer in going in blind to anything, whether it be a show, a movie, a, a book, a video game. I know it's a big time commitment with a movie. It's less. So I think it's more with, with movies, especially going in blind is, is a, a virtue, you know, on a TV show or on a video game or on a book, something that really is going to take a lot of your time up a lot more than two or just three hours in one sitting. Um, you know, having doing some research, knowing some things certainly helps. But with movies, it's just to me helpful to not know much. So the only thing I knew was that it was going to be kind of wild and unpredictable. And it really was. I mean, even knowing that, that was I was not ready for what was going to happen here. It was it the weirdest movie I've ever seen. Certainly not. Definitely not the weirdest uh, horror movie. I mean, horror is full of you know, strange films of course but you know at at this kind of level uh with you know this kind of a, a like it being an american film and getting certainly a lot of buzz and being on a major streaming service and i mean it, it did it does feel really out there and weird for that but what the the gist of the movie is and i will keep you as blind as i possibly can is it's about this young woman who's played by georgina campbell who shows up at this house that she rented on Airbnb. It's in Detroit. It's in a very shitty neighborhood in Detroit, but all the hotels are booked, whatever. So it's already, it's a very like 2010s kind of, um, you know, setup for a movie, 2020s, I guess, setup for a movie. And she, so she shows up to this house and there's a guy already there. And he tells her that, you know, he's, rented the house as well on a different app. And it looks like, well, we're going to have to stay together in this house and figure it out tomorrow. So we'll do that. And so, you know, things are very uneasy 
as they kind of talk to each other and you don't know who to trust and who is this guy. And the fact that he's played by Bill Skarsgård doesn't make it any easier because he was the clown in it. And it's just like, you know, he's just got that thing. Go- he's got that reputation where it's like he's going to slice your throat. So just watch out. And like every move she makes, you know, I mean, it's the classic thing. You're just like, oh, my God, what are you doing? But the movie from there goes to compl- just wild directions and eventually ropes in other actors and it just I don't want to tell you anything else but it becomes a lot more than what you're originally thinking it is going to be um and I really did enjoy the ride Beth and I watched it and we are like we love watching horror movies together and it was fun to watch it and just like see where this movie was going to go but what I will say about Barbarian is that I feel like it was trying to do way too much. Like there were some really interesting things here and subtext wise, there was some interesting stuff here um, about the blight of these neighborhoods in Detroit and about, you know, staying put while everyone else is moving out and about, you know, these kind of, these rental companies and like investor rich investors buying houses in areas where people that are lower class, middle class should be able to afford houses, but they, they get priced out things like that. Like those are, you know, elevated horror kind of stuff comes into play here. Um, but there's just not enough. Everything happens like so quickly because it's a pretty short movie. It's like an hour and 40 minutes And there is honestly enough storyline in this film and there's enough characters and there are enough twists in this movie to fill up an entire season of American Horror Story. And that's what I feel like it would have been better as like this would have been probably the best season of American Horror Story in a decade if that's what this had been. I think it could have been a very solid little miniseries. Um, And I can think of easily about three hours worth of of material for episodes that they could do here. Making it four episodes might have been a stretch, but... You know, I mean, this could have really been something like that, and it would have been like the best horror thing to be on TV in years. Instead, we're left with a movie that is wild, unforgettable, unpredictable, but I think the replay value really suffers once you've seen it and you know where things are going. Outside of let me watch this with someone and watch their reaction, um, I don't know that there's a lot to go back to because it is very unpleasant in a lot of parts. Uh, and once you've seen it, I feel like, you know, that's kind of that's kind of it. But I, I will say it was talk about swinging for the fences. I think that's exactly what they did here. Um, but there were just some things that were just sped through too quickly. Like I would have liked to have seen a lot more with a certain character whom we see in a flashback. Um, and that whole flashback is very eerie and sets up some really gross stuff in the movie. But we just don't get to get into that very much more. Other than, you know, like just for a minute and it was there was something really interesting there. And like I said, I think I could easily see a whole episode being spent just on that portion of the film. Um, But just trying to do a little bit too much. But hey, how many horror movies can you say that about? Most of the time they try to do very little. But uh, in Barbarian, they were trying to do too much, which I always appreciate more than trying to not do anything at all. So. I give it a recommendation, especially, you know, if you are looking for a horror movie that's different and is going to take you places that you do not expect. If you want to be kept off, you know, off balance, 
give Barbarian a watch because it is a fun watch. Um, as much as it also is like a gross and, and you know, it's got body horror elements. It's got practical makeup effects elements that are really sick. It's got some really funny stuff in it as well, like in a dark way. Um, and it all builds to a pretty wacky climax. Um, but really, it's a fun ride. And, uh, you know, it's it's a, certainly a lot better than most, uh, you know, horror movies that you're going to catch. So give Barbarian a watch on HBO Max. But like I said, far from perfect. Could have been better. Um, but I really did enjoy it. And in fact, coming up after Andy's segment, I'm going to talk about a horror movie that came out this year and also made a lot of waves that I enjoyed more than Barbarian and I think did use its runtime a little bit more effectively to get some big ideas across while also being creepy and fun as well. But anyway, Barbarian streaming now on HBO Max. Check it out. Uh, hey, uh, the laundry's still in wash. Um, uh, but I thought, um, well, I'm wide awake, so so I um, it's going to be a bit not. I thought I'm going to have some of this here wine. But I didn't want to open it before um, you got out of the shower because I, I know you didn't drink your tea. And, would, well, I totally get that, by the way. I mean, you don't know me, and, and this is a really weird situation. It makes total sense. Um, but I thought that, um, you know, you might want some of this. But if I open it while you weren't here, that, um, that um, I'm, 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 I'm sorry, I'm rambling. Jesus Christ. Um, I thought you wouldn't want any if you didn't see me open it. So I waited. I'm good. You may never look at breastfeeding the same way again after you after you watch Barbarian on HBO Max. All right, with that little note, I'm going to uh, take a break and toss things over to Andy Sedlak. Like I said, he's got a deep dive into this year's crop of... Um, Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. We're going to see what he's got to say about that. And he'll also add five more songs to our never-ending Spotify playlist at the end of his bit. And then I'll come back, and I'm going to tell you about that horror movie I was talking about before. And also, I'm going to finally tell you what I thought about Top Gun Maverick, because I finally saw it. And I'll tell you about the best movie I watched this month. All that and more coming up on the Stream Police Podcast. 
Dr. Feelgood. I don't know for sure, but it sounds like they, they cut this live. Like not in concert, but in a studio with everybody playing at once. Anyway, the song is Riot in Cell Block 9. It's a cover of an old song from their second album in 1975. Again, Dr. Feelgood here. Everybody from Johnny Cash to Commander Cody has covered this for good reason. The reason is it's it's awesome. Okay. My name is Andy Sedlak, and I oversee the music department here at Stream Police Headquarters. Clint, I'm glad you had no trouble getting those Taylor Swift tickets. I've been critical of Taylor Swift, but i got to say... Antihero is a good song. Friends, it would make our day if you'd rate and review us. Positive ratings and engagement mean means that we have a chance to, to creep up the pecking order when people search for podcasts like ours. Thank you in advance. Now let's get on with it. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it! I just watched the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction ceremony on HBO. You know, I'm in Cleveland. We've got the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame right down the road. Uh, it's it's 15 minutes from the house. I've been many times. I'm, I'm invested in the Rock Hall. Now, the HBO special is still out there if you'd like to watch it as well. Pat Benatar, Lionel Richie, Eminem, Judas Priest, The Arrhythmics, Duran Duran, Dolly Parton, Carly Simon. That's the induction class. I think I got everybody. Now, Judas Priest and Eminem are probably the only two I would induct. The fact is, watching the ceremony, everybody who was inducted seemed pretty tickled to be there. Probably because they're a little undeserving, but but I digress. Here's Dolly Parton. I said, rock and roll, Hall of Fame, me in the rock and roll. And actually, I thought, well, I don't know if I deserve to be in the rock and roll Hall of Fame because I never thought of myself as a rocker, but I've always loved rock and roll. My husband's a huge rock fan, and I, get, I just thought that the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame was for the for the rockers of the world. But anyway, when I found out, it was a little more than that, just the fact that I had influenced people with my music. And I I said if they put me in, I would accept it gracefully, and I'm here, and I will, and I'm honored. Pat Benatar, Lionel Richie, Eminem, Judas Priest, The Arrhythmics, Duran Duran, Dolly Parton, Carly Simon. Again, that is your induction class for 2022. Today we're going to do a deep dive into these Hall of Famers. I'm going to recommend a deep cut from each of them. No hits, deep cuts. So let's dig into these acts and maybe, just maybe, we'll come away with a more well-rounded view of them because the only way to do that is through getting to know their deep catalog. Hits alone will not provide it. Ready? Let's start with Dolly Parton and a song from 1975 called Bargain Store. My life is likened to a bargain store And I may have just what you're looking for If you don't mind the fact that all the merchandise is used But with a little mending it could be as good as new 
Why you take, for instance, this old broken heart If you will just replace the missing parts You would be surprised to find how good it really is Take it and you never will be sorry that you did This is from an album also called Bargain Store. I mentioned that it came out in 75. If you can believe it, Dolly had already released 14 albums by then. 14. The bargain store is open, come inside. You can easily afford the price. There is a reason that you've probably never heard this song. While it was on its way to becoming a smash, word started to spread among country radio programmers that the song was about prostitution. That's right, prostitution. It is not. It's about somebody who's down on their luck. All you have to do is listen to it. But you know how Nashville can be, and the very notion of playing a song rumored by some to be about a hooker was just too much. Programmers dropped it, and the song died on the vine. into Duran Duran, the ultimate 80s band, and I don't think any other band comes close. Maybe Huey Lewis in the news. Over the 40 years I've been working, I've come to believe that the essence of our job is this. We get to make people feel better about themselves. This is an industry that I am proud to be a part of. Thank you. That's Simon Lebon lead singer of Duran Duran. The song I want to play is called New Religion. It's from their Rio album, which was like Duran Duran at their most Duran Duranist. Call it the zenith, the peak, top of Mount Olympus. The album had Hungry Like the Wolf, My Own Way, and the title song, of course, Rio. New Religion was one of the first songs they recorded for this album. And the bass part, that's right, the bass part, Steals the show.
is John Taylor on base. They've got him turned way up. John Taylor left Duran Duran in 1997. He had already formed a super group with Robert Palmer, the guy who sang Addicted to Love. And he began to pursue a career in film. His movies weren't exactly smashes. Four Dogs Playing Poker, The Flintstones in Viva Rock Vegas, and A Diva's Christmas Carol. He ended up rejoining Duran Duran in 2001. New Religion is a gem hidden in plain sight. Anybody who has heard Duran Duran's most popular album has heard New Religion, because it's on it. Yet if you're a singles band, album tracks might as well not even exist. It's really kind of tragic. I'm talking for Let's move on to Eminem. Here is Dr. Dre inducting him. When I started working on this speech, I asked Eminem if there was anything specific he'd like me to say to everybody, something that he would like them to know. And he said, okay, um, number one, I want you to tell everybody I have a huge penis. But when he started counting, I was wondering why he decided to use this finger. I've selected an Eminem song called Rock Bottom. Rock Bottom. Ayo, this song is dedicated to all the happy people. All the happy people who have real nice lives. Eminem really was broke back in the day. Prior to the release of the Slim Shady LP in early 1999, he worked at Gilbert's Lodge, a family dining establishment located in southeast Michigan. He was a dishwasher, and then he worked as a cook at Gilbert's Lodge. That's what he was doing between his first and second album, which Rock Bottom is on. Leave your ass mindless When snakes slither in the grass spineless That's rock bottom This life makes you mad enough to care That's rock bottom You want something bad enough to stay That's rock bottom When you feel like you've had it up to here Cause you 
He claims that during this time, his home was robbed several times. Rock bottom doesn't only refer to financial struggles, of course, but to emotional ones as well. Perhaps they were tied together, but Eminem reportedly attempted suicide prior to the release of his second album. Again, that is where Rock Bottom appears. Rock Bottom was never a concert staple, but that doesn't mean it's not an achievement. When people talk about the Slim Shady LP, they talk about My Name Is and Guilty Conscience. Nothing wrong with those songs, of course. But the next time somebody brings it up, why don't you bring up Rock Bottom? Throw that one out there and see what happens. Let's move on to Judas Priest. I want to play you a song called The Rage. This song's intro, I I could kiss it. It's so beautiful. I mean, that that has my attention right there. The Rage also contains one of my favorite lines. We were drinking beauty with our eyes. Rob Halford. My God, Rob Halford. Judas Priest launched a a thousand imitators. Despite some valiant efforts, nobody sounds exactly like Rob Halford or the rest of the band. Merits of their style depend on your politics, but it's not an easy style to replicate. 
And it says a lot that so many young bands chose to go down a path like theirs. It is not an easy one. Judas Priest have released 18 albums. Between 1976 and 1982, they put out seven albums. That's seven albums in a six-year window. In 1978, they put out two records. The last record was in 2018. Interestingly, for a band as legendary as Judas Priest, they were just inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, right? They have only won one Grammy Award, and that wasn't until... 2010. Let's talk about the Eurythmics. The Eurythmics are made up of Annie Lennox and Dave Stewart. Annie is a powerhouse. Dave, I have some problems with. Now, that's not the song I'm recommending. It's called The First Cut. But it serves as an example of why I have a problem with Dave Stewart. He overproduces the hell out of everything. If you think Jeff Lynne is bad, Dave Stewart is in a different league. So many tracks are loaded with dated 80s sound effects. Bleeps, bloops, clangs, reeks of clutter. I mean, it's a lot even for the time period. It's as if... Overloading a track is the same thing as being avant-garde. It is not. Still, I I found a cut that I liked. No surprise, the production has been dialed back to a reasonable level. Stewart must have been sick during mixing. That's a slinky track. The song is from the point of view of an abusive man. 
I have a delicate mind, I have a dangerous nature, and my fist collides with your furniture. Again, the song is called Regrets. Black is red and red is white. In this country, I do what I like. That's a punishing line. The album that Regrets is on is called Touch. It also includes a song called Here Comes the Rain Again, which was a top five hit. The album was ranked among Rolling Stone's best albums of all time. But if you ask me, you can take Regrets and you can take Here Comes the Rain Again and throw out the rest. Dave Stewart just overcooked the pie. Pat Benatar and Neil Giraldo are next. Pat Benatar married her guitarist, Neil Giraldo. The marriage has lasted 43 years. They are still married. Giraldo isn't just in the band, though. He wrote with her. He produced her. Behind the scenes, they were a package deal, even though the album covers only mentioned her name. Anyway, they were inducted together. I'm going to play you a song from Pat Benatar's first album. This is called Rated X. The song was written by Nick Gilder. Gilder is famous for the song Hot Child in the City. And when you listen to Rated X, you'll notice it sounds similar to Hot Child in the City. I'll play them back to back. First, Rated X, then Hot Child in the City. Hot 
Can you hear it? You notice the similarity? Pat Benatar puts just the right touch on Rated X. You've heard me say it before, but I believe that phrasings are the most important things to listen for when you're listening to a singer. More than octave, more than octave range and all that. Benatar's phrasings are are so precise. Pat Benatar would move in a pop direction, and it paid off, made her a career. But early on, when she when she focused on like rock music, that's when I liked her best. Okay, two more inductees to get to. You still with me? Do we need to take a break? All right, let's take a break. While we do, let's listen to uh, a clip of Jerry Lee Lewis in the 1980s. This is when most of the bands we're discussing today were popular. Okay, here he is. I am just what I am. Jerry Lee Fuck up, Lewis. If they don't like that, they can kiss my ass, boy. All right, that's enough. We lost Jerry Lee recently. I could talk for days about his music. Complicated, complicated man. Uh, Probably wouldn't have been friends, but his music means a lot to me. All right, break's over. Let's get back to the inductees. I want to talk about Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. They were inducted in the musical excellence category, not as artists. Because they weren't artists, right? They were songwriters, producers. They worked with everybody, from Usher to to Janet Jackson, Boys to Men. Uh, Worked with George Michael. Our goal is to leave music in a better place. That's me and Terry's goal at this point. We are celebrating 40 years. We did this. And we said 50-50. That's our contract. 40 years on that contract we've been together. And next year, we will be celebrating our 50th year as friends. 1973, we met. We've never had an argument. We've had disagreements, but a disagreement you're trying to solve, an argument you're trying to win. I don't want to win anything that he loses, and he feels the same way about me. Here's something unique that Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis were at the helm of. This is Herb Albert with Janet Jackson this came out in 1987, the year I was born.
Let's talk about Carly Simon. There are, of course, two Carly Simons. There's the Carly Simon who sings big, slow songs. And the other Carly Simon, kind of a spitfire. Uh, this is the Carly Simon that did You're So Vain. And it's also the kind of the side of her that I like better. Uh, this cut is a good example of that Carly Simon. She's kind of a kind of like a bookish spitfire, but a spitfire nevertheless. This is called The Wives Are in Connecticut. from an album in 85 called Spoiled Girl. It didn't do very well, only got up to number 88. I'm not even entirely sure I know what this song is about. Obviously, it begins with a cheating man, but but is she cheating as well at the end of the song? I, I can't tell. The song swells as if there's a resolution, as if we're supposed to be on the same page, but I'm not. Uh, and I think that's okay. I mean, I still I still get the feel of it. I know that something auspicious is happening, uh, and, and I sense the complexity, even if I'm not sure I could break down the complexity. Yeah. Or was it Most of all, though, I, I know that nobody in the song is happy. He's so sly. He's in love with his life. The Wives Are in Connecticut was released after peak Carly Simon. You're So Vain was already 13 years old at this point. 
Her next few albums did better, but it wasn't until Moonlight Serenade was released in 2005 that she was back in the top 10. And by then, she was back to singing those big, slow songs, not not the same Carly Simon. The wives are in Connecticut. If you can figure it out, let me know. One more. It's Lionel Richie time. Personally, I think Lionel Richie is hammy as hell. But, but you know, he seems like a likable guy. And he came up with a masterpiece of a song in 2004. That's back when his daughter was a borderline bigger star than he was. Uh, Lionel himself had just gotten divorced. We've discussed before on this show how that can be a recipe for success. And I'm not sure if it's, you know, ever an equal trade, but but heartbreak can produce honest music. song appears on is called Just For You. Good title for an album. To me, Richie can sometimes sound like mawkish, uh, but there's backbone in this song. He sits up straight and he says what he has to say. And that could be because he wrote this song with a couple songwriting pros. In fact, they are a team, Paul Barry and Mark Taylor. Those two guys also wrote Believe for Cher and Balamos for Enrique Iglesias. God was God, dreams were dreams, life was all big and ice cream, truth was true. Here, they find Richie's sweet spot, which is mid-tempo, but with just enough dexterity to keep it from being too heavy to fly. And my heart is breaking just for you, just for you. And my arms are open just for you, just for you. And these tears I'm crying are for you, just for you, just for This is a brisk track. This is a brisk track, and it, it suits Lionel Richie well. And my arms are open. 
And that wraps our deep dive into the 2022 class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Once we hear from Lionel Richie giving his induction speech. When I started out, um, there were categories. I didn't like categories because it pigeonholed everybody. In other words, you walk over and hear the blues players, and they were called the blues guys. And then here's R&B, they were called the R&B guys. Here's the country guys. Then there's these guys, rock and roll guys, heavy metal guys. And I kept thinking, okay, so what happens if you just play music? So the question is if Mozart were Mozart and he was R&B, would he be Mozart? No, he'd be in a category, follow me. So I broke, I came out of that. I said, okay, so R&B is not a color. It's a feeling. Music is a feeling. So I just started writing what I felt. And my answer to that is, yes, it's about time we got here. Can't say it any better than that. All right, friends, we are creating the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify just by searching Stream Police. You can also find this podcast that way. Every month we add five more songs to our living document. That is the most perfect playlist known to man. And this month, we start with Bruce Springsteen and Any Other Way. Second is Jerry Lee Lewis and Loving Up a Storm. When a kiss is a fly like oak leaves, caught in a gust of wind, my heart beats fast as a clickety clack, like a train going round the bend. I call that loving up a storm. I said that's loving up a storm. Well, it's good for you, honey. It won't do you no harm. Then, Not Today by the White Buffalo. One more trip around the sun. What else do we say? Happy New Year, Earth. Or something else cliche. Well, it's a whole new Find what's pure and true Strangulate my wicked way 
Band, Through With the Two-Step by Robert Plant. Through with the two-step Where the rhythm is long And finally, our, our last selection, my choice of uh, Dr. Feelgood at the beginning of this segment was actually a tribute. Wilco Johnson, the band's guitarist, died in November. So look, let, let me recommend this song to close things out. This is called Sneaking Suspicion, and this is a tribute to Wilco Johnson. That's it. Clint, back to you, my friend. Hope you feel better. All right. See ya. Always good stuff, Andy. So good to hear from you again, my friend. And and we were talking, Andy and I, uh, just this last month when the whole like Taylor Swift uh, Ticketmaster debacle, as it's been called, uh, went down. And I posted on Instagram that I got tickets to go see her in Cincinnati uh, at one of her shows at, at uh, Paul Brown Stadium or whatever it's called now. And so Andy was like, you know, how was it? Was it? as rough as they're saying it was. And for me, it was not at all. Like I had no problem at all. I I did the thing where like two weeks before the tickets went on sale, I I jumped in a line for a couple hours. And then at the end of it, they verified that I was a real human being or whatever. They verified that I was a fan. They said it wasn't, you know, anything. It was just making sure that I'm not a scalper basically. And then they, they, you know, they told me like at this, on this date, log in and here's your code that you'll put in and you'll be able to get tickets. And so I did that. 
And actually, I forgot about the sale on that day. It was like I had the wrong date. So I logged on like several hours after the sale had already started. And I still was able to get pretty decent seats. So I don't know. I don't know what happened to everyone else. Maybe it was because I was going for Cincinnati versus like, you know, some of the other markets that are a lot bigger that people were going to. But I mean, I know people trying to get tickets to the Cincinnati shows that could not get them at all. So I don't know, but the Ticketmaster thing worked fine for me. Um, and I promise you, I did not pull any, I have no strings to pull at Ticketmaster. So I got tickets to Taylor Swift somehow. But anyway, Andy was like, I, don't, I didn't do anything. I didn't know anything about it. So I didn't want to talk about it. But if you want to talk about it, go ahead and mention it. And so there you go. That was my experience with buying tickets for Taylor Swift. So now I'll let you know how the show goes when it comes up this summer. All right, let's move on and talk about some more movies. We got a movie heavy back third of the uh of the Stream Police podcast this month. Again, I'm Clint Davis. I talk movies and TV here on the show. I want to remind you again, follow me on Letterboxd at Mr. Clint Davis. You can also follow me at, on TikTok and Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis as well. And you can email me anytime at theclintdavis at gmail.com. So when my wife and I were taking our trip uh, up the Rhine River in Europe, uh, as I mentioned at the start of the show, which led me to getting COVID, we ended our trip in Amsterdam. And we spent a a night in Amsterdam, uh, you know, just kind of exploring a little bit, a day and a night in Amsterdam, having fun. And one of the things that I always like to do whenever we are on any kind of trip, if it's out of the country or even if it's just in another big city, You know, we did this when we went to uh, Washington, D.C. We did this when we went to St. Martin for our honeymoon. We did this in Ireland. And now we've done this in Amsterdam. And that is go to a movie. I want to go to a movie theater and and see a movie, especially usually at an art theater, which is what we did in Dublin. Um, And that was one of the best theaters I've ever been to. It was called The Lighthouse. Great place. Very cool. Uh, layout and just it really felt like an art theater but it felt like a really nice one and it was big it was bigger than most art theaters I've been to it was kind of like the gateway here in Columbus Um, but anyway when we were in Amsterdam we went to the most gorgeous movie theater I have ever seen in my life and this place was like just a gilded theater from the 1920s and uh, this theater is called uh, the Royal Theater Tushinsky. That's the English name of it. But uh, the Tushinsky Theater or the Pata Tushinsky, um, there's several names for it. But it is just a gorgeous place. If you Google it and, and, and check it out, you'll see like these red velvet seats and this beautiful carpet and, um, you know, just gold curtains over the uh, movie screen and just a, a huge house with a balcony and, you know, classic like concession stand area and all that kind of stuff. And and so we went to this theater and we went and saw The Menu, which has been, um, you know, a pretty big hit, especially for a horror movie uh, this year. And if you want to watch The Menu, it is now in theater still. And it's also going to be streaming on HBO Max on January 3rd. So if you've been holding out on wanting to see The Menu, You'll be able to check it out on HBO Max on January 3rd. I feel like, I swear to God, like I am not getting paid by HBO Max at all. But I feel like all I do is talk about HBO Max. And it sucks because I don't want to just talk about one service. 
Um, the next thing I talk about will not be on HBO Max, I promise. But like this episode, it's been heavy on HBO Max. And that's, you know, they, they've they had a lot of bad press in the last month. So I, I'm like giving them their PR department really, you know, should love me for this show because I'm really pimping them a lot in this episode. So I apologize for that. It makes me feel kind of gross, but uh, it's just totally by accident. They just still happen to have the best catalog for me and my tastes uh, of any of the big streamers out there. But anyway, the menu, which stars the great Anya Taylor joy, how can you not love her? Um, and also a scream queen in my mind, just because of her great work in The Witch, which is another one of my favorite horror movies of the last few years. She was just magnetic in that movie. A lot of people really fell in love with Anya Taylor-Joy when she was in The Queen's Gambit on Netflix, which I actually have still not watched. It's one of those I always keep I keep reminding myself, like, man, I need to watch that. And then I just don't. Um, you know, I think about something else. You know how it is. But uh, she's a she's a treasure, okay? But anyway, she stars in the menu. This is a movie that is a high concept film. It's a, it's about a group of you know elite people who go to the most elite restaurant on earth. It's on like a remote island, and there's this reclusive, um, acclaimed chef that runs the place, and you know dinner is served in these very um, ornate courses that the whole meal tells a story that's been curated by the chef and his staff and it's all you know very theatrical and it's a dining experience unlike any other and people pay ridiculous amounts of money to be able to say that they've done this that they've eaten at this restaurant on this island and so in the menu that's what happens and but things turn sinister and the island becomes more like a prison to these people who've been invited um, when the chef, who is played by the great Ray Fine, uh, decides to give them a little bit of a surprise and a little deviation from what he usually does at his fancy restaurant. But anyway, the the cast here is tremendous. It's it's an ensemble piece through and through, which I love anyway. Anya Taylor-Joy, as I said, Ray Fine, they go head-to-head in a lot of scenes, both very good. Fine is like really dialed back in this movie and he's really he's doing this american accent and he sounds really good he's he's just like measured and and he just draws you in and it makes you think about his role in like schindler's list or it makes you think about his role in the harry potter movies and how evil he has been but in this movie he's one of those complicated villains who becomes much more likable as you get to know him and as you get to understand him. Um, and it's one of the better villains that I feel like I've seen in certainly a horror movie in a long time. Uh, and a lot of people might even say he's an anti-hero by the time they're done with this film for various reasons. Uh, Hong Chow, if you haven't seen her before, you might have seen her and just didn't know her name. If you look her up, she really surprised me by how creepy she was in this movie. She kind of stole most scenes because she's like Ray Fine's right hand woman, I guess. And she's like keeps everyone in line on the island and, and keeps things under control when they start to wobble a little bit. And she is chilling in every single scene she is in. Uh, but the other characters, like it's a room full of some of the most punchable characters that I can recall seeing in a movie in a a long minute. Everyone in this movie basically is is 
extremely punchable. And so it's the classic horror thing where you're just you're kind of glad to see them get their comeuppance when it happens. Um, and, oh, it happens to most of the people in this movie. So uh, but, yeah, we watched the menu in Amsterdam. And that was funny because before the movie, they're showing like all these commercials, like TV commercials, and they're all in Dutch. Um, and so, you know, we couldn't understand any of them, but you know, it's always funny when you're through context clues and it just makes you think about people who come to the United States or whatever, um, and don't speak much English, if any at all and watching TV and just how weird everything has to seem. And you're just like wondering, like, is this supposed to be funny? Uh, and trying to figure out what the storyline is based on what they're saying, because you have no clue what they're saying. And it all sounds very weird. Uh, but you're just, you got people around you and they're maybe they're laughing. And so you're trying to figure out why that may have been. So it's a, it was a really weird thing. But then obviously the movie comes on and there it's in English because the movie was in English anyway. And they, but they've got Dutch subtitles on there. So I just had to ignore those for the entire film, but, uh, no matter, it was a great experience. The, uh, theater was gorgeous and the movie was great. I loved this because there was so much like cinematic muscle at work in this movie. This was one that you could just tell was made by someone who went to school for it and knew what they were doing. And I was very impressed with, um, you know, like all of the little tricks and the little, um, I don't want to say tricks because I think that diminishes them, but just the flourishes and just like in a great meal, you know, the flourishes are kind of what makes the difference and makes you feel like you're in a place that's worth a little bit more money. And that's what happened here. And the director of the movie is a guy named Mark Mylod, and he's a British director who I did not know about, but he's done work on Succession. He's done work on Shameless um, as well and uh, Game of Thrones, mostly just in TV. But uh, this guy, I think, is going to have a a nice little film career ahead of him now after doing this because it's turned into a hit and his talent is just undeniable after you see it, uh, especially, you know, for genre filmmaking, for making tense moments as tense as they can be and uh, making the payoffs really count when they happen. And there are a lot of shocking ones in this movie. I was impressed, but there, there's a lot of subtext here as well. It's all about class uh, warfare. It's all about the way that, the uh, you know the one percent keeps all of the rest of us divided against each other, and uh, how the rules for them are different than they are for anyone else, and you know the resentment that bubbles up because of that, and the ways that they keep their power in underhanded ways. So, and also it's about art, and it's about cooking as an art. But you can translate the things that Ray Fine's character says about why his art form he feels has been damaged. You can translate that to, uh, to cinema, to TV, to books, whatever, um, any art form, uh, that you want to and how the mystique is gone from a lot of these things because we are so, everything is so readily available to us at all times. And while there is a beauty to that, there's also, you know, it just makes it, it makes everything a little bit less meaningful and a little bit less special. It dulls the impact uh, that would have just hammered people before. And now it's, you know, all a little bit expected at this point. And he gets into that. So there's a lot of stuff being said here in the script of the menu that I didn't expect from what really looked like kind of a, a little thriller with some twists 
in it. It was more meaningful than that, and it was one that I do want to go back and watch again. I think there is good replay value in this one versus what I was saying about Barbarian, where I feel like it's kind of like once you've seen it, you've seen it. This one, I think there's more there, and I will look forward to going back and seeing it again. But it was just such a a, a well-made movie, and it was very funny in parts um, and very real in parts and, and, and pretty violent throughout the entire thing. So not for the faint of heart, but also a, a, a really, really good one and a really special piece of, of horror thriller adult, you know, R-rated cinema. Good stuff. The Menu, now in theaters and also streaming on HBO Max on January 3rd. If you want to check it out, I totally recommend it. We're leaving now. I have, have to get my wrap. Forget your wrap. Get up. But, uh, Mr. Liebrand? We're leaving. Is something wrong? We're leaving. There is no boat to leave on. Then I'll call a helicopter. That would be very difficult without phone service. Fucking move. Just, just do what they say. No, I can, I can, I'll, I'll handle this. Just, just, just With which handle. hand, Mr. Liebrand? What? With which hand will you handle this, left or right? What the fuck are you saying? Shall we choose? Choose what? Very well, left hand. Ring finger. Let me out. Let me out. No. And also one funny thing about watching that movie in uh, the Netherlands is that over there they have this beer and I cannot remember the name of it now. They have this beer over there that's sealed with like a rubber lid and you actually pop the top of it off almost like a cork on champagne but the cork doesn't go shooting off. It's like attached to the bottle. But anyway, it makes this popping noise. And so we kept seeing, we saw a commercial for it before the movie and couldn't understand anything they were saying, but it was all about the pop of the beer. And it was like, basically like Miller time. It was like, you know, when it's time for this beer, like you'll hear that pop. And so all throughout the movie, like we, we must've heard probably 15 of these pops throughout the movie. Just, it would come at random times. And you're watching this like tense horror movie, and hearing these like little gunshot pops. So that was a little weird. Um, and also reminded me that I was in a, 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 a strange place watching a movie, but it also added to the ambience and it was, it was kind of cool and it actually did make me want one. So it was marketing in action. And I just looked it up by the way, and it's called Grolsch beer. So in case you were wondering, you want to uh, pop the cork on a Grolsch you can do that and you can feel like you're in Amsterdam watching the menu with me and probably getting COVID. I hope that we didn't give COVID to any of those nice young Dutch couples that were sitting near us in the movie theater, also laughing at the uh, shocking things we were seeing on screen during the menu. A movie that I wish I had seen in theaters, but I waited and waited too long and didn't get to watch it until just recently over the holidays, staying at my in-law's house, my father-in-law, he he uh, bought it on Amazon and was like, oh my God, have you seen Top Gun Maverick yet? And he's like a big nerd into planes and stuff like that. He was in the Air Force and all that. So he loves that kind of stuff. So of course, it, you know, it was a movie that he would be into. Um, but I was like, no, we had been wanting to see it. Beth had really wanted to go see it and we just never made it out to go see Top Gun Maverick. You know how it is if you have kids um, or if you don't and you've got other things going on or you're not, you know, totally sure about going to a movie theater yet. You know, there's a lot of reasons to not go out and see movies right now. 
Um, but we missed Top Gun Maverick, despite it having one of the longest theatrical runs of any movie in recent memory and getting insane reviews as it was out. And the fact that it stars, you know, a guy that I could arguably say is my favorite actor of all time, Tom Cruise. I, I am like, one, I would die on a hill you know, saying that Tom Cruise is the actor of his generation and one of the greats ever uh, and one of the great lovers of movies. That's why I love Tom Cruise. I think he genuinely loves Hollywood and filmmaking and movies. He just loves that shit. Uh, It eats it up. He thinks it is, I mean, he respects the art form and is a historian and all that kind of boring shit. He just loves it. And leaving his mark on it. And I think it's a, he's a guy that just truly wants to do everything he can before he's in the ground. Um, and I think he's making good on that. But anyway, Top Gun Maverick, the sequel to Top Gun, is streaming now on Paramount Plus if you want to check it out. But I have to say, I was never big on the original Top Gun. I'm a big Tom Cruise fan. My mom growing up, man, she had every one of his movies on VHS. I mean, every one of them. Far and away, you know, uh, all the right moves. She had all like the weird, like the ones that he's barely in just for like a few minutes. Any movie that he made a cameo in, she had it on VHS. Even ones that she didn't even like that much, she had them. So, you know, we watched a lot of Tom Cruise movies when I was growing up. And Top Gun was just never one that I loved. I mean, I loved, uh, I mentioned All the Right Moves. I loved that one. I I loved Risky Business. um, Loved Rain Man. um, If we're talking 80s Cruise movies. I I love uh, The Color of Money. Cocktail even, even though it's a huge bummer. And should not ever be marketed as a feel-good romp. Um, through the world of bartending, because that's not what it is. It's a grim drama. Um, But Top Gun was not one that, like, knocked me out. Like, the highs are high and the lows are low, but other than that, like, I barely could remember the story at all. You know, I just remember the music because the soundtrack's awesome, and I remember, you know, some of the big character moments, but I don't remember a lot of what really happens in the story and what even the climax of the movie is and what the big... Thing is that they have to overcome. But anyway, Top Gun Maverick is, you know, a a direct sequel to that movie that comes out 30 years later. And I have to say, I think it's the perfect sequel. I think if you are trying to, like, make something that is going to satisfy big fans of an established, you know, IP, but also bring new people in. And ensure that the legacy of that original one does not get hurt at all. And in fact, is actually bolstered. This is that movie. Like, literally everything you could possibly want from a sequel to a movie that you love was done in Top Gun Maverick. It was all done with care. It was all done with love. But it was a necessary new story, which is what's the thing that's missing from sequels? Nine times out of ten. A story that needed to be told. The only reason that we get sequels is usually because the first one made money, and so they crank out another one as fast as they can to capitalize on, you know, the that still being a hot property. It's the oldest story in Hollywood, basically. You gotta capitalize on what's hot and 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 make something else before people forget and move on to the next thing. But with Top Gun Maverick, we've got a piece of property that was not even close to hot anymore. And this movie actually spotlights that 
in the way in a brilliant way by talking about the technology in the original Top Gun and how ancient it is at this point. So by effect, showing us how much time has passed, reminding us how really, you know, like old this guy is, how seasoned he is, and how the stuff that you saw in that original one, like this is light years ahead of that now. Uh, While that stuff seemed crazy cool, and it was in the first Top Gun, like now we're dealing with a whole other, it's almost like you got to be a rocket scientist to fly the planes now versus, you know, back then, Um, you know, all the training you already had to have to be, you know, a fighter pilot. But Anyway, the the story here about Maverick going back and being a teacher at the Top Gun Academy um, is it's a great story. And we've got real years put on to to Tom Cruise for this role. Um, And we've got character callbacks to the original movie in some cases, but not a lot. We've got characters who were in the original and show up again in meaningful ways, most notably Val Kilmer uh, and his character Iceman, who shows up in one scene that's very memorable. It was done in a nice way. You wish that more could have been done, but, you know, I mean, they did the best they could. And it was nice. And they have all these little moments that do remind you of the original movie, but it's not in a way where, like, it's lazy. And it's not in a cute, cutesy way uh, like so many movies do. And it's not in a, hey, remember this kind of thing. It's not that kind of a thing. It's like all written very well. Like this movie could have been, it could have been not a Top Gun movie. Like it could have been something else. But the fact that it is and they rope in all those Top Gun things is what takes it over the top and makes it special. This would have been a fine movie if it was not connected to Top Gun at all. And it didn't have Tom Cruise in it. And it was the story of this old fighter pilot going back teaching young, new hotshot pilots to do this dare, uh, a death-defying mission that they're going to have to fly into. That's a great story on its own. But the fact that you tie it into something that's pretty much beloved, has one of the great actors of all time in it, um, one of the most iconic movie stars ever, who is nuts about doing his own stunts and who does stuff in this movie himself... Um, it just all adds up to something that was so special. And like I said, it's the perfect sequel. I mean, you cannot find a sequel that is more satisfying than this. This is, this is it. This is the, the playbook on doing a sequel the right way. And does, do movie studios want to wait 30 years to do a sequel on a movie that's a big hit? Obviously not. There's too many what ifs. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying that that works every time because it doesn't. We've seen a lot of these kind of reboot, rehash sequels that are lame and lazy and just trying to cash in on nostalgia. But Top Gun Maverick doesn't do that. It tells a real story. It moves the characters into new places. It features great performances. Another really good one from Tom Cruise. Um, And some of the best work I've ever seen from Miles Teller. He's very good in this movie. New actors that I hadn't seen before who are like becoming stars. John Hamm does a great turn here as well, playing, you know, a part that's a little bit reminiscent of Don Draper, but cranking up the asshole meter even a little bit more. But also like he you you get him like he doesn't feel like some kind of the only character in the entire movie who I felt was like a cardboard cutout kind of generic um you know, cartoon character kind of thing was the the guy played by Ed Harris who shows up only at the beginning of the movie. And 
you know, I mean, it's the typical, like, he's the heavy, and he wants to shut down, you know, this program that they're doing so that they can start doing unmanned aircrafts, you know, drones, and, of course, that's going to take over the, the, the these fighter pilot roles and whatever. So that whole part just felt the most heavy-handed that the entire movie was, and thank God it was at the very beginning because it was all really uphill from there, and even that whole sequence was good. Mostly because of Cruz. But like, and, and I mean, Ed Harris is just a phenomenal actor. It doesn't matter what he's doing. He can make anything like seem like art, really. Uh, but that was the cheesiest part of the movie. But other than that, loved it. I was gripped the entire time. I thought the runtime was perfect. I didn't think there was anything that needed to be trimmed. I didn't think anything needed to be added. I was just blown away. It's a sequel. Who knew we even needed it? I remember when they announced it, it was like, really? I mean, Tom Cruise does not do sequels. That's one of the weird things about his career. Other than the Mission Impossible movies, he has not really been in sequels. He just doesn't, like, do them, which a lot of actors make all their money on sequels. I mean, you think about a guy like Harrison Ford. He's in sequel after sequel after sequel. Everything he does is a sequel. Um, but Tom Cruise didn't really ever do that except for Mission Impossible. And those movies, I would argue, with the exception of Mission Impossible 2, every one of them is a worthy sequel to the original. The Mission Impossible 2 sucks, and I'm a huge John Woo fan, so that pains me to say it. But, I mean, the doves, fly, like all of it's just so cheesy. The motorcycle <laughs> scene was great, but everything else, just bad and cheesy. Uh, but they did have Metallica in it, and it is John Woo. So, you know, there's... There's only so much bad shit I can say about Mission Impossible 2. But anyway, Top Gun Maverick, the perfect sequel in every single way. Totally worth all the hype. If you've been ignoring it for whatever reason, forget it. Just watch the movie. I don't even care if you know anything about the original Top Gun or not. Doesn't matter. Cool movie. You can watch it totally on its own. It stands up on its own. Another marker of this being, again, the perfect sequel. It's streaming right now on Paramount+. Plus. It's Top Gun Maverick. Stop wasting time and turn this thing on. Half of you will make the cut. One of you will be named mission leader. The other half will remain in reserve. Your instructor is a Top Gun graduate with real-world experience in every mission aspect you will be expected to master. His exploits are legendary. And he's considered to be one of the finest pilots this program has ever produced. What he has to teach you may very well mean the difference between life and death. I give you Captain Pete Mitchell. Call sign, Maverick. That would have been killer, though, to see in theaters. I would have loved to have watched that in theaters. I just did not get to make it. So I have to imagine it was a killer one to see there, but it was pretty good on my father-in-law's like 80-inch television or whatever it is that he has. It, it, it still worked out, still had plenty of... Still have plenty of kick on there, if I say so. Uh, let's talk about the best movie I watched this month. Even though I loved The Menu and I love Top Gun Maverick, neither of them would go down as the best movie I watched this month. Instead, that honor goes to 1967's The Producers, um, a movie I already loved. But I went back and watched it again, mostly because we were in Germany for a lot of our trip. And so, like, the whole time we're there, I've got these songs from the producers in my head. And that is, I know it's horrible, but I just do. I've just, I'm just thinking when I think Germany, I think the producers. And uh, I wanted to go back and watch the original because I hadn't seen it in a long time. I, the, the 2005 version with Nathan Lane 
and Matthew Broderick I've seen more times than the original, if you can believe it, mostly because I just I like the extra songs. It's not that I think it's better because it's not. The original Producers is better as a movie. The The newer one is just way too freaking long. But I do like the extra songs in it. Um, but the 1967 Producers, Zero Mostel, Gene Wilder playing a couple of guys who joined together to produce the worst show in Broadway history. It's a, a musical tribute to Adolf Hitler called Springtime for Hitler, written by a a former Nazi on the run. Um, they're trying to produce the worst play ever so that they can have it close in one single night, even though they raised all this money and then they can reap all the profits and ride off into the sunset. Uh, but of course things don't go quite as they planned in this best laid of all plans. Uh, and it's, it's the movie that made Mel Brooks into a Hollywood staple. Um, and you know, it, it earned him an Oscar for best original screenplay. And, and that is really to me, one of the most deserved Oscars that's ever been given out. Um, best original screenplay usually is one that is deserved. And in the case of the producers, certainly I think they got that one right, but it's proof also this movie that broad does not have to mean stupid. And I think that was Mel Brooks's whole thing throughout his entire career, whether you're thinking about blazing saddles or young Frankenstein, um, or High Anxiety, or you know any of those great Mel Brooks movies, Robin Hood Men in Tights, Spaceballs, they're all totally broad, totally obvious a lot of times, but none of them are stupid. They just work. They're just funny, and a lot of times smart, but at the same time, it's just it's broad and silly stuff, and he, the guy just knows what's funny, knows what works, and the producers is about as you know, a funny, a concept for, uh, you know, uh, uh, for a movie as you can get, uh, unfortunately right now it's not streaming for free anywhere. You can rent it on all the streaming services, but, uh, uh, I, I watched it, my copy on DVD that I've still got sitting downstairs. So I recommend that if you want to watch the producers, check it out from your local library as well. If you've never seen it, it's just still, it's so good. It has aged like a fine wine, I have to say. We looked around, and then we found the man for you and me. And now it's springtime for Hitler and Germany. Deutschland is happy and gay. We're marching to So 1967's The Producers, that's the best movie I watched this month. Gene Wilder just gives his all, man. He goes for broke in that role, just puts it all out there. And Zero Mostel is so sleazy and good as Max Bialystok. I just, I can't even believe that anyone else tried to play those roles. Um, but the fact that, you know, Broderick and, and Lane did and became arguably the signature players of those roles is mind blowing to me because Mustel and Wilder were just so flawless in those parts that it's hard to think of anyone else as uh, Bialystok and Bloom. Mm-hmm. 
All right, let's talk about some movies now streaming before we uh, send you out the door here. Um, let's go to Netflix first. Usually I like to give you something light and something dark on each service, Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max. But on Netflix, I'm just going to give you two things that are light because they had two good comedies coming on January 4th to Netflix. First off is Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence in Life. Um, which was a movie that I absolutely loved when I was a teenager. This was one of those that we had, like, it, it was probably one of the first five DVDs that we had at my house in our whole DVD collection. And I think I've still got that copy. Um, and it was just one that I watched all the time. I, I just thought it was hilarious. It's endlessly quotable. And I'm so glad that it's finally, like, gotten a little bit more respect over the years. Because it was one of those movies that I would mention and I would quote and nobody ever knew what I was talking about. But now life is finally getting getting some love. So Eddie Murphy and Martin Lawrence, a dream team together. The late Bernie Mac shows up as well and steals some scenes. Very funny movie. Uh, life is streaming now on Netflix. And another something light for you uh, on Netflix is the classic Grease with the late Olivia Newton-John in it. I saw it at the drive-in. Um, on the weekend after Olivia Newton-John died last year. And I, I tell you, man, it's still just as good. And it, it's the songs are just perfect, and the dance scenes are great. The The actors really get so into their parts, and it's so bawdy and just funny. It's still funny. I, I just I, I like Grease. It's one of those movies that you know I'm glad was such a big grocer back in its day, because I think it, it tells me more about the American movie going public than a movie like Avatar being the top grocer or any superhero movie does. Like the fact that gro uh, that Grease, something with, you know, such character and with such an American kind of, you know, heart beating at the center of it and the cars and the sex and the teenagers and the drive-in movies and, um, you know, high school and all that kind of stuff. Just it, it's all... It's all there on the screen, and it's, it still works. It just crackles, man. It's a it's a cool movie. Grease streaming right now on Netflix. That's another one that has aged like a fine wine. On uh, Amazon Prime Video, let me tell you about something light streaming there. Another cult favorite of mine from my youth, Death Becomes Her with Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep uh, and Bruce Willis uh, splitting screen time. It's just a, such a weird movie like I just think about this movie and like I just want to be there when it came out like what were the reactions like with this just special effects heavy kind of like Tales from the Crypt-esque um, you know moral horror story being told with the great actor of her generation Meryl Streep and you know a couple of big stars of their own and Bruce Willis and uh, and and Goldie Hawn um and it's just so much scenery chewing. So, like I said, so many great special effects. I remember watching this movie when I was a kid, and I had never seen anything with special effects like this. Like when the hole is in her stomach, uh, I think it's in Goldie Hawn's stomach, and she can like see herself through the the hole. And just the whole premise, it's like a whole... This is totally a story from The Twilight Zone made into a feature-length film if you've never seen Death Becomes Her. So you got to check it out. It's a wild, wild watch. And uh, still so good. I'm going to go back and watch it again here uh, probably this week when I get a chance. Something dark for you on, and, and Death Becomes Her is pretty dark, but it's also 
It's also funny. It's like gothic comedy. Um, but something darker on Prime Video is Basic Instinct. It's from the same era, early 1990s, uh, with Sharon Stone and Michael Douglas just torching the screen. So much sex coming off the screen in this movie. It's uh, still just a very good adult thriller um, with some really nice twists and some good moral ambiguity, some great performances at the top. It's well shot, well acted. It's a huge homage to Hitchcock. It's like if Hitchcock made R-rated movies with nudity in them and lots of sex. Like this is the basic instinct is is what kind of that's what it's going for here. And is does it reach the heights of a Hitchcock movie? I don't know, but I think it's a pretty damn good movie. Honestly, I think it holds up really well. Uh, and a lot of it hinges on Sharon Stone. She just is so charismatic, magnetic, electric in this movie. Throw any of the other adjectives out of the bag at her that you want to. Um, oh, and I do want to mention as an aside that NYPD Blue just came back to Prime Video as well. It was on there back in the day, and then it went away. NYPD Blue, one of my favorite TV shows ever. I still think it has the best pilot maybe in TV history. So if you've never seen NYPD Blue, I'm not asking you to watch all 12 seasons. But if you want to, I think you'll enjoy it just as much as I did. But I am asking you to watch the pilot because it is in the pantheon of great pilots. I'd put it right there at the top. It's my pick probably for the best pilot in TV history. It just, what you got to think about when it came out. You got to think about that period in TV, what else was on, the way police had been shown on TV, and then see this show on network television, ABC, and just imagine that. Put yourself in that place and watch that pilot. It That, that episode is just so well-written, so well-directed, so well-acted, and so different. Like, it, you just want it to be a movie. You just want it to keep on going. It's I love that show. What a what a what a great one. One of my all-time favorites. Anyway, it's streaming now on Prime Video in its entirety. Uh let's move on to Hulu. Something light for you there. We've got uh Wes Anderson's The Royal Tenenbaums, which is the prototypical Wes Anderson movie. If you ask me, he's had a lot of prototypical movies cuz really his are all kind of the same aesthetically and, you know, musically and you know, the performance-wise with that deadpan acting. Um, but the Royal Tenenbaums really, to me, sets up what the Wes Anderson, you know, a lot of the tropes are going to be for the rest of his career. And it does them really well. It's it's like a book on screen, you know, with the chapter breaks and with the way the characters are introduced. And it's just a very cool movie. The aesthetic of it is is has been ripped off by people and memed so many times. Um, but it's still kind of just one of a kind. It's got a great ensemble. It's a fascinating movie to me. It totally engrossed me when I was a teenager and really first getting into movies and really getting to know directors. Like, it's a good place to start on that. And Royal, the Royal Tenenbaums will make you want to learn more about Wes Anderson and see more of his movies. Uh, they don't always reach that height, but uh, it's it's a nice little oddball gem of a of a character piece streaming now on Hulu something dark for you both Blade Runners are actually streaming on Hulu including the final cut of the original and uh, Denny Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049 um, which I really enjoyed as well that was uh, one that I will never forget seeing in a movie theater because it just took up the whole screen and it was a lot of fun to go watch it so check out both Blade Runner movies right now streaming 
on Hulu. Finally, on HBO Max, something light for you. Let's go with 1996's Black Sheep. This is the other Chris Farley, David Spade, you know, buddy comedy to come out in the 1990s after Tommy Boy, which, you know, Tommy Boy is the superior movie. Um, Still one of my favorite comedies to this day. I, I still can quote it like the back of my hand. And Black Sheep comes out shortly after that. Tells a different story, but it's still Spade and Farley together on screen. So people kind of, you know, it, it gets lost in the shadow. But it's a very different movie, and it's still very funny and still very quotable. I still quote Black Sheep a lot as well. Please hold little root. So it's it's hilarious. Uh, Farley and Spade were just brilliant together. Farley himself was unforgettable. And uh, check him out in all his glory in Black Sheep. And something dark for you on HBO Max. It doesn't get, I don't think, any darker probably in Hollywood history than Hereditary, the Ari Aster masterpiece, which I put in my top 10 movies of the last decade of cinema, 2010 to 2019. Um Give it a watch if you've been putting it off for whatever reason. I just I can't recommend it anymore. I've talked enough about Hereditary on this show. It's uh it's as good as horror cinema has ever been. It is the prototypical elevated horror film for a reason. It's a it's a masterpiece in every single way. And Tony Collette remains one of the best actors we've ever had on the screen. All right, that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I welcome you to go uh, find me on Letterboxd at Mr. Clint Davis so you can see a list. All these recommendations I just mentioned, they are all listed there in my lists. I've got a list set up that will say episode 106 of the Stream Police Podcast, movie recommendations. Find them all right there. And I remind you in there, um, of where they are streaming as well. So, you know, don't say I never did anything nice for you. Um, and also, you can find me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Clint Davis. You can email me anytime at theclintdavis at gmail.com. You can follow Andy at Andy Sedlak on Instagram, and you can email him anytime at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. Until next time, you know, we'll talk to you again here on the Stream Police podcast. I'm Clint Davis. So I want to say uh, thanks again to Andy Sedlak for. Uh, giving us his wit and wisdom on the world of music as well. Talk to you again in a month, my friend. Until then, stream on. A Zeppelin landed on his head, smashing his head clean out of his ass. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.